I want you to imagine overhearing a friend on the phone. And they're on the phone to Bill Gates, one of the richest men in the world. And you're listening in, and they are making requests. And then as you listen, you find they're making requests for you. (laughs) Great. Wonderful. If ever there was a man who has the finances and the resources to provide help, it's Bill Gates, surely. Surely he would be a great person to to be asking for help from. Well, in a much greater way, the disciples overhear Jesus praying for them. Uh, These 11 disciples that are with him at this point. Uh, He is going, but he knows exactly what they need, and he's praying for them. Imagine overhearing Jesus praying for you. What effect would it have? Well, imagine the, the confidence that it would give you. Imagine the encouragement it would be as you hear him asking for things that you maybe didn't even know you needed, but you hear them being prayed for and you go, ah, that's it. Imagine the confidence that it would give you that, okay, if Jesus is praying for me, I could make it to the end. You know, whether whether you've started the Christian life, like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, or whether you're thinking of starting it, or whatever your position is, if you heard Jesus praying for you, it would give you a confidence that you're not wasting your time on the journey, that you will make it to the end, and if you're thinking of starting the journey, that here is the right way to go. In these verses, in this section, Jesus is specifically praying for the 11 disciples. Some things... uh, refer particularly to them but in a wider sense they apply to all of us but I want us this morning to remember that he's praying for the disciples because as we remember that he's praying for these 11 men we can see his prayer being answered for them and as we see his prayer being answered for them we can see this prayer will be answered for us it's got a track record of being answered And if we know he's praying for us now, even praying these same things, and we see they've been answered for the disciples, that'll encourage us to start or to keep going. There's three things that he prays for in these verses. He prays that his Father would guard them, that he would delight them, and that he would deploy them. Let's take these three and look at them. That he would guard them, protect them. Uh, verse 11. We're reading, or we're looking from the second half of verse 11. Holy Father, protect them. Protect them. And then in verse 12, he says, I protected them. Verse 15, that you protect them from the evil one. He has watched over them. He's kept them going. He's guarded them. And he prays to his father that that would continue. He's about to leave. Jesus is about to leave. You know how it is sometimes whenever uh, famous uh, businessmen retire, sometimes their companies fall apart because they're not there. Sometimes leaders of movements, when they die, the movement dwindles. 
infighting occurs. Alexander the Great's empire was split four ways after his death amongst his four generals. And not one of those really became a great empire uh, that lasted uh, in the same sort of greatness of Alexander the Great's. So what happened to these 11 men? 11 leaderless men, dwarfed by the Roman Empire. Jesus prays, Father, would you guard them? And there's two aspects to the guarding. He says, protect them by the power of your name. Now, depending what Bible version you have, it may be translated slightly differently. Keep them in your name, some versions say. Keep them faithful to your name, other versions have it. It's saying the same thing. But the Greek, what it says is, keep them in your name. They had been baptized into the name of Jesus. Earlier in this section, in verse 6, I have revealed, literally, your name to them. It's not that there's some magic incantation about the name. It's that a person's name was the entirety of their being. And they were connected now to God and to God's name. They had been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's name sums up everything about them, and they are now joined to him, so to speak. And Jesus says, keep them in you. He's really saying, keep them faithful to you. Keep them believing in you. Don't let them fall away. What a marvelous thing to hear Jesus praying. The world's going to put real pressure on these disciples to give up, to recant, to turn their back on their faith. These men are going to trek over the ancient world and they're going to be put under pressure to give up the faith. And Jesus says, keep them going. Keep them faithful. You know, that was fulfilled. These men were kept by God. They kept believing. They kept going. God kept them going. God kept them in the faith. It was a wonderful answer to prayer. And as they scattered across the Roman Empire, traveling on their own or in small groups, and went to far-flung places and were threatened with death and were put to death, they kept the faith. They were kept in the name. Jesus' prayer was answered. And how encouraging is that for us to see that and to know that that same Jesus prays for those who put their trust in him. You, there may be times you feel you'll not make it. You may think, what point is there in me starting the Christian life? I don't know that I could do this. And you hear Jesus say, Holy Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. We've seen that he's able to do it. There's the guarding. And there's a second aspect to the guarding. Jesus continues, So that they may be one as we are one. He wants them to be kept in the faith, kept connected to God, kept believing, so that they are united. Because nothing would be more destructive for this group of 11 men than if they were fragmented. Jesus is praying that nothing would shift them from the one foundation of the message that they had been given. 
that there would be, Jesus is praying there would be no power plays and no squabbles, no fights about who was the greatest. There would be no debates that would divide them about doctrine. There would be no deviating from the truth. And you know, these are ordinary men. And often in the Gospels, you go back through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what's the very thing we find them doing? Squabbling. Having a row about which one of them is more important than the other. I'm more important than you. No, you're not. I'm more important than you. No, I'm more important than all of you. And that's what they keep on. It's almost embarrassing. To me, it's actually one of the little strands of evidence that the Gospels have to be true. Nobody would make up accounts that portrayed themselves in such bad light. Really, would they? It's, it's embarrassing when you read it. Missing the point. Not getting the clear teaching of Jesus. Squabbling about it then. And blaming each other. What a disaster for the church. You know, Islam. After Muhammad's death, there was a great fragmentation. Uh, and a fighting for leadership. And, and debates over his teaching. But none of that happened with the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. Why? Because this prayer was being answered. They were kept in his name. They were kept united. These men were kept guarded and united. And there were all sorts of big issues that could have divided them. But they were kept together. They were kept and guarded. But we've already mentioned someone this morning. And we've kept talking about 11 disciples. Were there not 12? Well, what about Judas? What about Judas Iscariot? Was he not kept? There seems to be an exception to this. But Jesus is well aware, and he was well aware all along. We're told in John six sixty four, For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And in these verses here, Jesus says, While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe, or literally kept them in the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction that Scripture would be fulfilled. Judas was lost, just as the Scripture had said. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend whom I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Psalm 109, let his place of leadership be taken from him. It was not, though, because Jesus had not been able to keep Judas. It was not because of any weakness on Jesus' part. Jesus or Judas, although outwardly one of the twelve, was not inwardly one of the twelve, like we thought with the children about Pilgrim's Progress. He hadn't been changed inwardly. He wasn't in the name. He wasn't connected to Christ the way the others were. And so even the very exception, the one that was lost, is evidence that Jesus loses none of his people. That sounds like a contradiction. But Judas never was one of his people. That's the point. Guard them, Jesus says. And that prayer is a prayer that is answered. Guard them that they may be one even as we are one. Here's tremendous encouragement for us to hear Jesus praying for the guarding of his people. And just as a a side application, as well as being encouraged, surely it's something we should pray for. 
If Jesus thought it necessary to pray for such unity, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Satan loves to divide, loves to break up churches. And actually the world we live in is a very fragmented world and what it needs to see is that there's a group of disparate people, varied people from all sorts of backgrounds who come together and there's closeness and community. And in a fragmented world, that's what it needs to see. Satan doesn't want it to be seen. So we should be praying that our churches should be havens of togetherness in a world of brokenness. And Jesus prays for it here. Guard them, Father, that they may be one even as we are one. Second thing he prays for is delight them. Delight them. You know, some people would have the impression that to be a Christian is to be miserable. And in all fairness, some Christians give that impression. And they never seem to be happy. And of course, life is, for some, extremely hard. But joy and suffering are not mutually exclusive. They can go together. And we see it here. Was ever there a man on the brink of anything more colossally awful And yet Jesus speaks of his joy. He prays that his joy would be in them. You get a sense in verse 1 to 5 of Jesus, his delight in the glory of God and the glory that he's come from. And we thought a few weeks ago about the unbroken joy that he had experienced. And Jesus prays that we would have joy. A joy that is rich and can overwhelm suffering. A joy that is deep and can overwhelm trial and struggle. And he prays out loud so that his disciples can hear him. He wants them to have this joy. He's already spoken of it this evening in John fifteen eleven. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And let's just notice briefly some things about this. Look at the quality of the joy. My joy, Jesus says. My joy. The joy that he has. A joy that he had with his Father before the world began. An unbroken joy. A rich joy. A joy that is apart from pain. A joy that is so rich that it can dwarf suffering. He's on his way to the cross and yet he's got this joy. A joy of knowing that His Father loves him. A joy of knowing he's doing his Father's will. A joy of seeing the great plans of God unfolding. A joy of knowing that he belongs. Father, that we, they may be one even as we are one. It's a sorrow-crushing joy. How important it is that because there's a light, there's, there's, there's there's an imitation joy. But it gets crushed by sorrow. Jesus is talking about a joy of such a quality that not even going to a cross could crush it. Instead, this joy would crush this sorrow. There's a quality to it. Jesus' joy that he has in relationship with his Father is on offer to us. My joy. Look at the quantity of it. So that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. One writer says, like a vessel that has been filled to the brim from which they may draw at any time. It's a small boy 
one of my favourite things was to go to uh, one of those uh, events like there was a couple of days ago, was it in Convoy? There was a pudding party. You know, sometimes you went to, out for a carvery. And it was great, except it was always disappointing. You could go up as often as you liked to the main course table. But the dessert table, well, you couldn't just keep going up and up and up to the dessert table. But at a pudding party, you can. You can keep going. And that's what Jesus is praying here, that, that, that there's a, that a vessel filled to the brim from which we can keep going to. And again, it's so important to remember that he's talking about this in the shadow of the cross. This is a real deep joy. Jesus is a man, the most joy-filled man who ever lived. And he's also a man of sorrows, who experienced more sorrow than any human being who has ever lived. Because he came to bear sins. But he was also this man of joy. And he came from joy. And as the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is joy. He is filled with joy more than anybody else. And he's returning to joy. And he prays that we would have access to this reservoir of joy. That we might be able to drink from refreshing fountains in the midst of a sorrow-filled desert. Maybe, 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 maybe God has taken you into a desert to show you that the fountains you've been drinking from are fountains of salt water, seawater. They seem to quench the thirst, but they actually make you thirstier. So that you turn to drink from this real pure water of life that is a life-giving fountain that brings joy. Or it may be that you do drink from that fountain of joy that is knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, but God has placed you in a desert so that you can be an oasis, so that other people can see that although you yourself are in a desert, there is life and vitality and richness about you. And people can look at you and go, there's something you've got. Your life should be, should be less joy-filled. But you are filled with a joy that is different. How do you have a joy like that? How is there life and vitality about you in a desert? And the answer is Jesus' prayer for you is being answered. You're knowing this joy. Can you grasp the quantity and the quality of it? And look at the location of it. A joy, Jesus says, my joy within them. Around them will be persecution and trial and trouble and hostility. Within them there's going to be joy. A joy that will overwhelm the outward troubles. There will be inner joy when there's outward troubles, a joy that nothing could take away. Every circumstance cries out for anger or frustration or sorrow. But in the midst of it all, there's a deep joy within Jesus' people. And how do we know this is true? Well, as we read on in our Bibles, we find this prayer being answered. In the 23 books that come after the Gospels, 18 of them speak repeatedly of joy and rejoicing. 
In Acts 5, we find the disciples are told that they are going to be put to death if they keep on uh, preaching about Jesus. And we read that they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's almost like a word-for-word answer to the prayer that's here. In Acts 13, the disciples were filled with joy. And the Holy Spirit, Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been beaten. They're in stocks. Their arms and legs held in a contorted position. What are they doing? Singing. Why? Because Jesus prayed that they would have joy. His joy, an overflowing joy. It's not connected to our circumstances, not dependent on our circumstances. There it is, being answered. Paul's letters, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. In Romans 5 and Philippians 1, people are preaching the gospel sort of out of spite against Paul. And Paul says, I don't care. I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. James, Jesus' half-brother, says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Peter says about these disciples that he's writing to, You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. John, another of the disciples, says, We write this to make our joy complete. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking In the truth, joy, 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 joy marks the lives of these disciples. This isn't a theory. This isn't a pious sort of front of a prayer. This became a reality in the life of the disciples and the next generation of Christians. Do you know this joy? Jesus prays for this joy for us. This isn't a light, frittery happiness that bubbles along on the surface. This is a deep-rooted joy that comes from knowing God, from having God as your Father in heaven, knowing that He is in control of all things and that He is working them for your good, that you're loved beyond anything you could ever imagine and that you're more accepted by God, loved by God, liked by God than we could ever grasp. Now, why would we drink from the seawater of this world when we can drink from that fountain? And yes, sometimes we look at the troubles that are around us. And Jesus knows that only too well, that the things that are in front of us sometimes overwhelm us. And he says, Father, would you pour joy into their lives? A deep-rooted joy. Delight them, he prays. Delight them. Wow. And the Father answers that prayer abundantly. And then Jesus prays, don't just guard them, don't just delight them, but send them out. Because if you're guarding them, they're going to be safe. And if they're filled with joy, they're going to live for me these attractive lives in a world that is hostile to them. Deploy them. Since it's a military term, send them out. Send them out. Do you ever wonder why when a person becomes a Christian they don't just shoot off to heaven the moment that they put their trust in Jesus? It would be great in one sense if it did work that way. 
But at one level, it doesn't happen because Jesus doesn't ask for it. He says, my prayer, verse 15, is not that you take them out of the world. If he did pray, take them out of the world, then the minute you put your trust in Christ, be gone. But at another level, it's because Jesus has worked for his joy-filled, faith-maintaining, guarded people to do. And he wants us to go out and to be salt and light in the world. And really, as we finish, there's just three things to note by way of application uh, in this point. Be ready. Because as we go out into the world, we'll find that there is a hostility. Jesus says in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. And so hostility shouldn't come as a surprise. I think it's an odd thing though. Surely if Christians are loving their neighbour as they love themselves and seeking the good of everyone, we, the world should love us. And yet the key word here is, I have given them your word. We have God's word. The word of the creator. And the world that we live in is in many ways running its own Brexit campaign. A God exit. It wants to leave the control and the authority of God. It hates being reminded that uh, we live in God's world. And so don't be surprised that as we seek to live according to God's word and promote God's word, that those who want to flee from God's word find that irritating, frustrating. They find their conscience pricked by it. So be ready for that. But don't react in a wrong way, either by becoming angry and bitter or by withdrawing. Because remember, Jesus has prayed that we will be kept faithful. And he's prayed that we'll be filled with joy. So that leaves us with two things left. Be engaged. Be engaged. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. You know, in, in the Middle Ages, people disengaged from the world and went into monasteries. Sometimes Christians can be like rabbits. Somebody talked about rabbit hole Christianity where a Christian sort of sticks his head out of the rabbit hole, runs to church on the Sabbath day, runs back again home and doesn't really engage with the world. And then the midweek meeting, they, they, they sort of they run out and they go to it, to the Bible study, and they come back and they live in their little rabbit warren of Christians. We're not to be like, like that. We're to engage with the world around us, not hide away from it. We're to be Christ's ambassadors, staying on the message, on the message, faithful to it, and filled with joy of trusting in God amidst our circumstances. So be engaged in your workplace. Be engaged in your community. Go to things. Whether it's the park run, whether it's the PTA, whether it's the food bank, to work there and to volunteer there. Go to things you're interested in. Write to TDs, write to the council, stand for the council. Be engaged with the world. And again, that prayer has been answered down through the years as Christians in many different ways, some notable, some unknown, have been engaged and their lives have been used by Christ to reach the world. Be engaged and be different. 
Twice Jesus says, For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Verse 16, They are not of the world even as I am not of it. We're in the world, but we're not like the world. John Woodside last week at our church weekend spoke of Jesus. He was in the world, but he wasn't like the world. And yet sinners love to spend time with him. Is there a way to, there is a way to be engaged and engaging. And our being different is marked by these two things. We, we stay on the message of God's word. And we live with a confident joy in what God is doing. And the word of God will draw irritation and maybe even hostility from people. But yet there'll be something winsome about our lives that says that people look at and go, I wish I had that. And in a world increasingly opposed to Christ's ways, instead of going into conflict mode, we're to be different. And to live not with sort of grim-faced determination to stand for the truth, but joy-fueled determination to live and to stand for the truth. We are deployed, not perhaps as soldiers on the beaches of Normandy that we've been reminded about this past week, but as medics that flew to Africa during the Ebola crisis that flew in on a rescue mission. We are rescue mission workers rather than truth warriors. We are sent to stay on message and to be filled with joy, to be ambassadors for Christ. And that was what Jesus prayed for his disciples. That's what was answered for his disciples. And it's his prayer for us. So imagine overhearing someone making requests to Bill Gates. If you knew the certainty of the answer, it would change how you live, wouldn't it? Now hear Jesus pray for you, that you will be kept, that you will be kept and that you will be filled with joy, no matter your circumstances. And let that change how we live and let it change even how we pray for ourselves and each other. Guard them, delight them. Guard us, delight us, and deploy us or use us. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Thank you that we see that this wasn't just a words thrown into the wind, but that these were words that were answered. And that Jesus' prayer for his disciples was richly answered down through the, the next years. We see those men faithful to the end. We see them kept and guarded. We see those men filled with an inexpressible joy amidst all sorts of burdens and worries and pressures and stresses, but filled with a joy that was able to overflow and overwhelm the trials. Thank you that we see those men deployed, used by you, in the world, 
but not like the world, making a difference in the world, engaging with it, and showing lost and hurting people that there's a safe place and a home and help and hope and joy that can be had in this broken world. Thank you for enabling the disciples to be like that. And thank you for the certainty then that you will enable us to be like that. And so we pray, guard us, delight us, and use us. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.